example of opening up your Bible and seeing how should I read the text? How should I, what questions should I be asking? So I hope that what you learn here will translate as you study other books of the Bible on your own. And then the last, this one's kind of more specific to this study, um, as I really hope that you guys can leave here feeling a lot more confident in your ability to take observations of the text and then ask yourself, what do these observations mean? Okay, so to explain what I'm talking about, I want to kind of go over the study method that forms sort of the backbone of all the studies that we create here. This is a study method that we did not come up with. Me and Madison have both learned this at lots of conferences that we've been to. It's a very well-known study, so we can't take credit for it or anything. Um, but it's a very simple and straightforward and effective method. So I really recommend this when you guys are studying on your own. And it's called the CIA method. So I want you to flip to page four of your books where there's a note-taking page. And I want you to write this down, okay, because this is really, really important. So I want you to write down the letters C-I-A. Now the C stands for comprehension. So when you're looking at comprehension, you're basically asking the question, what does the text say? Okay, it's a very straightforward question. What is the text saying here? The I stands for interpretation. That's asking the question, what does the text mean? Okay, and then the A stands for application, which is how should the text change me? I'm gonna read those one more time because I've asked you to write them. I know it takes a little longer. Comprehension, what does the text say? Interpretation, what does the text mean? And application, how should the text change me? So when I say that my goal for the study is for you to grow in your ability to ask what your observations mean, I'm talking about the interpretation step of the CIA method. We tend to go into the Bible and we like to jump straight to application because it's kind of what's about us, right? So we like to read a text and automatically ask, how is this going to change me or how does this apply to my life? And if you've done studies with us before, you've heard me say this before, but when you jump straight to application, at best, you're going to end up with a shallow application of the text. And at worst, you're going to completely misapply it because you're not applying based on a correct understanding of what the text actually says and actually means. So it's really important if we want to get the most out of our application that we have to do the hard work of asking, what is the text really saying? Do I understand it and comprehend it well? And what does it mean? What meaning am I supposed to pull from this text? And then and only then do we do the application text, um, section of this, okay? So to prepare us for this and to make sure we all really understand, I just want to walk us through this exercise of doing the CIA method, okay? We're going to just do it with a couple of really kind of um, well-known passages in the New Testament. You can flip here if you want, but you don't have to because I'm going to read it. But I'm going to read a verse, and then I'm going to walk us through these three steps so you can understand the difference when I say comprehension or interpretation, okay? Because we're going to be working on this a lot during the study. So I'm going to first read Acts chapter 9, verse 18. <clears throat> this is when Saul is on the road, and um, it says, And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. Okay, most of us are familiar with this story. Um, this probably seems very familiar to us, so let's ask these questions. Okay, what is the text saying here? So when you're doing the comprehension step, you're going to be saying things like, well, it just said that Saul was made blind. It says that Ananias came and shared the word of God with him. It says that scales fell off of his eyes and he was baptized. More comprehension work would be asking, what was he doing on the road? Because the text before and after shares more, like, well, he was on the road to try to persecute Christians. So that's all comprehension level work, okay? So then when we move on to interpretation, we take all of that comprehension, we say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he was made blind and scales from his, fell from his eyes, right? 
Well, there's so many answers to that that could all be right. There's not a single right answer. There's a lot of meaning you can pull from the text. You could say something like, well, it means that God is powerful. It means that Saul was truly changed on the inside, and we see the external kind of illustration of that. It means that Saul was obedient to the call that God placed on his life, okay? It means that Saul's physical sight was a symbol of his spiritual sight. So we gained all of that interpretation, all that meaning based on our observations, our comprehension level, okay? And so then we can move to application and we can say, well, what does that mean for me? Am I spiritually blind or have the scales fallen from my own eyes? Okay, so do you see the difference between comprehension and interpretation? We're going to do one more just to be sure, okay? Go ahead and, oh, well, you don't have to read, flip there unless you want to, but I'm going to read Luke chapter 8, verses 52 through 56. <clears throat> Now, they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she rose immediately. And he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Okay, another familiar thing, we've probably all heard the story about Jesus raising this girl from the dead. So comprehension level, what does the text say? Well, it says that a child had died. It says that Jesus took her hand and said, child, arise, and she came back to life. It's pretty straightforward. So then interpretation is asking, well, what does that mean? Again, there's a lot of meaning that we can pull from that text. We could say, well, that means Jesus is powerful. It means that Jesus is the source of life. It means that she was dependent on him for her very breath, okay? That's all meaning. The text did not say that but we draw that meaning from what the text does say, okay? So then when we move to application, then we can say, well, do I trust that Jesus has the power to meet me in my areas of need? Do I look to him as my source of true life? Am I aware of my dependence on him? So do you see that kind of the process, the flow? Okay, so hopefully that just helps you really understand what I mean when I say interpretation. Now, some books of the Bible are really hard to understand. Like how many of you guys did the Hosea study with us? That is a tough book to understand. We had to do so much comprehension level work just to know what is the text even saying here. Like it, you read that at first glance, it makes no sense, okay? So that was an example of a book that requires a lot of, of comprehension level work. I kind of feel like 1 Samuel, it kind of falls into this genre of historical narrative where a lot of it is a little bit more straightforward. Yes, we are going to do a lot of comprehension and let that kind of work in this book, but this book has a ton of meaning packed in to kind of the narrative, kind of the story. So our emphasis this time is going to be really on sharpening our interpretation skills. It's going to be the first time in all the studies that we're honing in specifically on this skill. So to help you more with this, we've written the homework a little bit differently. If you'll kind of flip through a little bit, you'll see most of the questions are in plain text. But some of the questions are all bold. Now those bold questions are going to say next to them either interpretation or application. And we did this because we want you to know, a lot of people, I think, have maybe shared that, um, we, we do surveys at the end of, of every time, and what we kind of hear consistently from you all after every study is that you guys love the depth of our studies. We go really, really deep. You all also don't love the amount of homework that we have, <laughs> but unfortunately, the two go hand in hand. Like, we can't sacrifice the homework and still maintain the depth. We get the depth because we're doing the work, right? So what I've done here, what we've done here by doing these bold questions for the interpretation and the application questions, those comprehensions, the ones that aren't bold, those are going to be easy to work through. They're easy to find the right answer. You're not going to be questioning yourself. It's not going to take 
like a lot of time to really dwell on and think on. They're kind of straightforward. They're just asking, they're helping you zero in on what should I notice about what the text is saying, right? Now those interpretation questions, those ones are gonna be a little bit harder. You might have to think about those for quite a while and you might have no idea what you think the answer is. And sometimes, honestly, me and Madison, we were like, I don't even really know what I think about this, but I know that it's what we should be dwelling on. I know it's the questions that we should be asking. Sometimes there is a right answer, but a lot of times there's not. It's, there could be 10 answers in your group on some of these interpretation questions. And that's why when you read commentaries, scholars, they have different ways that they interpret as well. They have, they're all over the map on some of the things that we're gonna ask. Some of these interpretation questions, we were looking at several commentaries and we would have a different answer but depending on what commentator we looked at. So we want you guys to gain the skill of this critical thinking, like asking what meaning do I, want, do I need to pull from this text, okay? Because that's a skill that I think that you all are capable of and I really want you to grow in. Okay, so that's kind of why we've done it this way. Um, I also, if you are one of the people who maybe the homework becomes an obstacle for, like you just don't have the time or the homework is really hard for you, uh, or maybe you're even thinking about stopping coming because you're not able to complete the homework, I want you to feel the freedom to just do the comprehension level questions and not feel guilty about that. That will still help prepare you to come and hear the teaching and get a lot out of it because it'll help you have focused on the right areas of the text, okay? But if you are one of those people who really loves all of the depth that we get to, then I just encourage you to press into those interpretation questions. They're gonna be harder, you might get frustrated, but that's where the depth is gonna come from and where the growth is gonna happen, okay? So I hope that that's helpful, that we kind of change it up that way. We tried to kind of keep both for you, like help the, the homework be easier if you need it, but still keep the depth, so. All right, so we've gone over our goals. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us before we kind of start really digging into the kind of an overview of the text a little bit and kind of, you know, get ready to study the book, so. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all of the women that you've brought here tonight, and I pray that our time studying the book of 1 Samuel would be ultimately led by you and your spirit. I pray that you would be moving and active um, just as we teach, as we discuss, as we study on our own. I pray that all of that would not happen apart from you. I pray that you would be the one illuminating things to us, changing us and transforming us, that this wouldn't be knowledge that we're learning, but that this would be you conforming us more into your image, Lord, that you would bring these things to mind that we're gonna learn as we go through our daily life and help us to see how we should be different because of it. So God, I pray that even now, as we just start to get some background information, that you would help us to zero in on the things that you want us to zero in on. And I pray that this would just be led by you. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right. So what we are gonna do, if you've done studies with us before, this is the exercise we always start with. It's called reading the envelope. Do you guys remember this? So if you're new here, the idea, and again, this is not something that we have thought of. Me and Madison have been to conferences where we have learned this, so we cannot take credit. But the idea is when you get a piece of mail, that always comes in an envelope. And there's information on that envelope that prepares you for what you're gonna see inside, okay? So you're already in a frame of mind to be ready for what you're gonna read. So an envelope is gonna tell you who this letter is to, who it's from. It's on the postmark, it's gonna tell you when it was written and where it came from. Even the letter itself kind of tells you and prepares you for what type of mail it is. Like, is this a letter from a friend or is this a bill? Because your mind is gonna approach those completely differently. Okay, so you get a lot of information on an, on an envelope to prepare you and get you in the right mindset so that when you open that, whatever's inside of it, you're ready for it. 
So reading the envelope is kind of the same idea, those same things we would learn from a piece of mail. We're going to ask those about this book of the Bible, okay? So anytime that I'm going to study a book of the Bible, this is what I do first, and this is what I would encourage you all to do first if you're studying a book on your own, is to ask these questions. So it would be easy to kind of go through the questions and say kind of generic one-word answers, give a name of an author, a name of an audience, and, and a number for a date, but that's not really going to help us very much, is it? Like if we don't know what was going on during that time. Like how many of you guys are familiar with The Diary of Anne Frank? How many of you guys have heard of that book, The Diary of Anne Frank? It's pretty famous. If you haven't heard of it, it's the true diary of a girl, a little girl who during the Holocaust was in hiding and she wrote this diary and now it's like a famous book. Well, imagine if you read that book and you had never heard of the Holocaust. Like, you had no idea World War II ever happened, and you had no idea what it meant to be Jewish during that time. Well, that book wouldn't really make a lot of sense to you, and you would read these accounts, like her experience, it would be so confusing, and you would probably make wrong assumptions about what she was going through. You would not pick up on subtleties about why she might be fearful in a certain situation or why something might bring so much joy. Okay, so you wouldn't notice the right things if you don't understand what's happening. Now, the same is true of the Bible. Like, we want to know more than just the name of who wrote this book. We want to know more than just what date he wrote it. We want to know a full picture of who this person was, what was going on during that time, so that we can truly um, just have a, a full framework to immerse ourselves in and have be ready to read the text, okay? So go ahead and open to page one of your books, and what we're going to do is we are going to do read the envelope for 1 Samuel with as many details as possible in order to give us the best framework possible to study it in the coming weeks. So if you're not already there, go ahead and flip to the first page, and we're going to go ahead and answer these questions together. So we're going to start with who wrote the book. Well, 1 Samuel does not claim an author. Like, it does not say a lot of books of the Bible will say who wrote it, like within the body of the text. 1 Samuel does not do that. And so all we really have are people's best guesses. Um, likely, 1 Samuel um, is actually, 1 and 2 Samuel originally were written as one body of literature. Um, back in the times that this was written in the Bible, um, they wrote on a scroll. And the scroll just literally was not long enough to fit it all. So there's two scrolls, and that's how we have 1 and 2 Samuel. But it really is all one book. For the sake of time, we're only focusing on 1 Samuel for the study. But it's really the, that's really just the first half of a larger book. But beyond that, most people think that First and Second Samuel are part of a larger body of literature. So a lot of people think that it kind of goes with all of the books that kind of outline the history of Israel. Everybody disagrees on what books should be included in this. There's lots of different ideas. Some people include Deuteronomy and some don't. But a lot of people would say for sure Judges and um, Joshua and all the way to First and Second Kings. It's kind of like this whole um, history of Israel as a nation. And most people would say that we don't know the specific authors, but it was it's assumed to be written by a lot of different prophets. And so there was all, all these different prophets recorded what was happening, and then later on people assembled, assembled all of these different recordings together to create these books. And that kind of explains why sometimes there might be more than one account of something or things are out of order. So it was written by several authors and compiled together. So most people think that um, Samuel did write a lot of 1 Samuel, but we know he didn't write all of it because, as you will see as we study, he dies like halfway through. So he could not have written most of it. Um, so, But people do think that he wrote a lot of it from when he was alive, and then other prophets wrote the events that happened after, and it was all assembled. 
So since we don't know exactly who wrote it, it's hard for us to answer, like, well, who is this person? But we do know it was written by prophets, so we should ask the question, what was a prophet? Well, a prophet in the Bible is somebody who was chosen by God, and they spoke God's truth to others. <clears throat> they kind of had two roles. They had a teaching role, and they had a revelatory role. So that means that they were responsible for speaking the truth of God, but also sometimes they would reveal details about the future. Um, maybe they would say something that was going to happen, or they would tell people something that God wanted them to do, okay? So they would speak the truth of God, and they would also reveal things about the future. During the time of 1 Samuel, the prophets were the way that God spoke to Israel, the nation of Israel. So like us, we have access to the word of God, the Bible, and God speaks to us through it, right? We also have the Holy Spirit, which is another way that God speaks to us. So we hear from God in these two really like convenient ways, right? But the nation of Israel, they did not have like this whole Bible like we do, and they did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. They had prophets, okay? So the prophets were like God would speak to the prophet to give direction and instructions to Israel. So when the monarchy gets established, which we're going to read about in 1 Samuel, that's kind of what the book is about, a king is not able to lead under God's guidance and direction without a prophet revealing God's will to him. Like the prophet was God's mouthpiece. So if you didn't have a prophet, you had no idea what God wanted you to do. So a prophet was very, very important for a king to have with him, okay? There's over 133 prophets mentioned in the Bible, and fun fact, 16 of those are women. Um, so it is really safe to say the role of prophet is super important. <clears throat> so that's a little bit about the author. What about the audience? Who is this written to? Well, we've already established it's part of a bigger body of work that records the history of Israel. So this means that it was written for Israel to remind them of what God had done. <clears throat> it was kind of recording a history for them to remember, but it was really history with a purpose. It's more than just a history book. It's also kind of like written for the purpose of emphasizing how important it is that Israel continues to faithfully follow God. So it's, Israel rec it's history recorded with a purpose. So that's kind of who it was written to. When was it written? Well, it was, you know, for sure written after the deaths of the people in it. Um, I mean, other than if Samuel did write parts of it, but most people think it was written probably after the deaths of Solomon and David, but before the Assyrian invasion, which we're not really going to get into, but people think that there would be other, it, things would be written differently if it was written, you know, after that. So there's a lot of different, there's a lot, a big window in which it could have been written, and because it was written at different times by different authors, we don't have a date, but it could be anywhere from 960 to 550 BC. That's a big window, I know, and that doesn't really mean anything to us, but don't worry, because we're going to go there. Um, what about the genre? <clears throat> now, if you're not familiar with the idea of a genre in the Bible, this is referring just to the type of literature that the book is. So some books in the Bible are letters, like a letter that somebody wrote to somebody else. That's the, like the epistles in the New Testament. Those are letters. Um, some books are prophecy. Some are historical narrative. Some are wisdom. Okay, so part of having Bible literacy is having an understanding of how you read each genre. So like I know, we know in our culture, that I'm going to read a song lyric very differently than I'm going to read a legal manual, right? They're totally different. They're meant to be read differently. You draw different conclusions from them. And the same is true when we're reading a book of the Bible. We want to know the genre so that we know how to read it. So the genre of 1 Samuel is historical narrative. Um, <clears throat> so what does that mean? What is historical narrative? Well, in its most basic sense, it's kind of like a history book. It's recording the stories of what happened in the history of Israel. 
However, biblical historical narrative is a bit more purpose to it than simply telling us what happened. It tells what happens, but there's a lot of meaning behind all of these stories that are supposed to act as sort of a sermon, okay? So like there are these important theological truths within the text, in these historical accounts that we, the reader, are meant to discern. Now sometimes in these stories, we're given a lot of clues on how we're supposed to discern and interpret them. Sometimes it'll clearly state what God felt about a certain situation or what was pleasing or displeasing to God. Sometimes we have a lot of information going into it. But sometimes we simply have the, the history of what happened and we have no idea. It does not tell us, was this good or bad? Like, did God like this or did he not like this? And we're meant to draw these conclusions based on the information in the text ourselves. Hence our emphasis on learning better interpretation skills as we study together. Okay, so that's kind of historical narrative, what it is. Finally, where does it fit into the overarching biblical narrative? What's happened leading up to this point and what's going to happen after? Now, I know that in this room, we are probably all over the map in like kind of the extent of our knowledge of the Old Testament. Some of us grew up in church going to Sunday school. We heard all the stories. Maybe we don't know how they connect together, but you heard them. I did not grow up going to Sunday school. I've had to, you know, learn all this later in life. And some of us are maybe, some of you guys might be completely not familiar with the Old Testament at all. And so what I want to do is I want to anchor us with a very familiar part of the Bible that most people, even if you're completely new to the faith, have at least heard of. And this is the story of the Exodus, okay? Um, there's a lot that happens before the Exodus, but I think it's a good place to start because it's sort of the beginning of where you start to see Israel really form as a nation. Um, so Israel is basically made of 12 tribes and that originated as 12 brothers. It's the 12 sons of Abraham. And all 12 of these sons at one point were living in Egypt because of a famine. They are not Egyptian, but they were living in Egypt, okay? These 12 sons and their families. And time passes. Generations go on. These families, these 12 families grow. And they grow to the point that they become a so large a number that the Pharaoh of Egypt starts to get a little nervous. Like, he starts to worry, like, oh, my goodness, are they going to become a threat? So what he does is he decides to make them all slaves. And so Israel, basically, they are all slaves in Egypt, and they are in there for 430 years. That's how long Israel is in Egypt, okay, 430 years. They had grown so great in number. And this is the setting here, everything I've just said, that's the setting for the story that everybody is probably familiar with, whether you're a Christian or not. And that is the story of when God calls Moses to free his people from the Egyptians, okay? He sends these plagues. He does these miracles. Finally, Pharaoh lets him go, and so they start to leave. But then Pharaoh panics and says, what have I done? I've lost all my slave labor. So, so Pharaoh goes and chases them all down. And then we get to one of those other famous stories that everybody, Christian or non, probably is familiar about, and that is the parting of the Red Sea. So as Israel is fleeing and Pharaoh and his army are coming after them to try to get them back, God miraculously parts the Red Sea, allowing all of Israel to safely go through, delivering them from their enemies, from the bondage that they were in, and then sends the wave crashing down behind them on Pharaoh's army, wiping out their enemies. You see, it's already foreshadowing how Jesus is the one who frees us from the bondage of sin and defeats our enemies. So these are the stories that people, even that did not grow up in church, usually are familiar with. They're stories that are the most familiar in the whole Bible. They show the power of God in these mighty ways that inspire Hollywood to make movies about. Like my mom, 
I remember growing up, her favorite movie was that Ten Commandments movie made in like the 60s or 70s, you know? Like, I mean, because it's just, it's, it's, they're so powerful. And, you know, everybody wants a story about being rescued or saved. And so, um, yeah, they're very, very popular for a reason. However, not many people are familiar with a lot of the things that happened to Israel after that because it's, it gets a little bit dark, right? I don't know if you guys did the Judges study, but there are some dark things that happen when Israel, after you would think, they kind of set up these movies like, and then they lived happily ever after, you know? That is not the case. Israel did not live happily ever after. Israel is a mess, okay? So what does happen? They don't live happily ever after. What does happen? Well, consider this. They don't know life as a nation apart from their time in Egypt. Like, they started as 12 brothers and their families. They don't have experience as a nation governing themselves. They don't know how to establish order. So it's not really a surprise that they're kind of a mess as soon as they get free from Egypt, right? So they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time when they're wandering, this is when God gives them the Ten Commandments, another thing most people are very familiar with. And most people, I always just grew up thinking like, oh, this is just God giving them ten rules. But it's so much more than that. This is when God establishes his covenant with his people, Israel, okay? This is called the Mosaic Covenant. We learned a lot about this for those of you guys who did the Hosea study. So I hope you guys remember a little bit about this. But during this, God sets out kind of like a, a, a list of requirements. And he's like saying, okay, Israel, I require you to do these things. If you do these things... I will be blessing you, I will be protecting you, etc. If you fail to do these things, then judgment will come upon you, okay? So the important thing to know about the covenant that God makes with Israel after they flee Egypt when they're wandering in the wilderness is that it is a conditional covenant, okay? God made it clear that if they are faithful, blessings will come, and if they are not, then bad things are going to happen, okay? Now, anybody who did the Hosea study, were they faithful? No, they were so awful, so far from faithful. God is patient, though, for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years go by in this whole timeline, okay, where Israel is still in this covenant with God. Okay, it starts with after this covenant, part of it is that God promises them a promised land. So he says, hey, I'm going to give you this promised land. I want you to wipe out everybody in it because I want you to be holy and set apart for my purposes. Now, the people in this land, they were to wipe out. This wasn't just innocent people who were just worshiping in different ways. Like, this was some dark worship that was happening here. The worship that was happening by the people in this land involved child sacrifice, and it involved ritualistic prostitution, and it involved a lot of things that, for good reason, God did not want his people to be involved in. So this is where we see the book of Joshua. They enter the promised land. And then the book of Judges, we kind of see them continuing to take over the promised land. But we learn, if you did the Judges study, that they do not drive the people out. They don't obey God. And so, of course, they end up living among all these people, worshiping in these dark ways, and they start worshiping that way as well. A lot of them do, okay? They start getting into some pretty dark places. Now, so after they're in there, they're ruled by a series of judges. During the book of Judges, we kind of see this downward spiral where some of the judges, they kind of start off well. Every judge kind of gets worse and worse. The nation of Israel, Israel gets farther and farther from the Lord. The end of Judges is some of the darkest, most bleak stories that you will find in the Bible. Like, they were hard to get through when we were teaching them because they are so gut-wrenchingly awful. And those are to illustrate how unfaithful Israel was and the effects of them not, not obeying and driving out these other people that they were supposed to be set apart. Okay, so we finish the book of Judges seeing Israel in a very dark and bleak place. 
And that is where we enter in 1 Samuel, okay? Because in 1 Samuel, what's going to happen is we are going to see Israel basically reject God as their king. They are going to say, you know what? We don't want God as our king anymore. We want a king like all of the other nations, which is not a surprise because they had been living among these other nations and practicing their worship and becoming more and more like them. Okay, so this is kind of a big deal that they have done this, all right? And so then they reject God. We see, we're going to read a lot about what happens when these kings kind of come into, you know, power. Basically, the whole, all, the whole book of 1 Samuel is going to be the end of the judging period and the beginning of the monarchy. And we're going to read about the first and second king that there were in the history of Israel. Now, after 1 and 2 Samuel, we have kind of more kings in 1 and 2 Kings. And then eventually, after hundreds of years pass, God eventually says, you guys have come, gone so far from me. Your sin has become so great. You have broken the covenant. So I am finally going to enact the terms of the covenant. This covenant is ending. So now that might seem like a shock to hear God ended a covenant with the people. We worked through this a lot in the Hosea study that God did not break his covenant. Israel broke the covenant for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God was simply faithful to the terms that he had set. So that covenant was no longer. There is a lot of debate on what God's relationship with Israel looks like after this point. And so we're not going to go there. It's not the purpose of this study. I don't really, but I have not done the research for that. But if that seems hard to wrestle with, it shouldn't be too hard because the ending of that covenant is what kind of paves the way for the beginning of the new and current covenant that we get to be in now. Where when we are in Christ, we are no longer in a conditional covenant. There is no longer conditions placed on God's favor for our lives and God's blessing for our lives. Okay, So it is good news that that covenant ended and that the new covenant came. And knowing that that is the trajectory of where Samuel fits in is going to give us a lot of um, like insight into how to see like some of these events. How are they pointing to the greater covenant to come? How are they pointing to Jesus? Okay, So that's why it's important to know that that is what's coming, even though we're not going to reach those points in this study. Okay, So that hopefully will give us some context of where we're at in the story of Israel. Now that we have read the envelope and we have a better idea of the context of the book, I want to give you guys just a quick overview of the book as a whole to help you get grounded even more. So go ahead and flip to the next page. Um, now, <clears throat> sorry, my voice, I need to take a drink of water. Okay, so on the next page, we're going to go over just kind of the outline of what happened. Whenever I kind of study a book, I think it's great to start with reading the envelope, and then usually I have you guys do this next step yourself. But again, this is such a long book that we're trying to not overload you with some of the stuff. We're going to do it together. But what I like to do is I read through the book as a, like in one sitting if I can, and then I like try to sum up, okay, what are the sections that go together and what happened in the sections? And that just kind of helps give a framework and overview of kind of what happened. So <coughs> I use the term outlining very loosely. Most commentators do this too, but out, their outlines are a lot more detailed, but we just want to keep it simple, okay? And also, every commentator outlines it differently. And this is really just meant to be when you approach the text, kind of what are the sections that go together well for you? And that's going to help give you insights to say, okay, when I'm reading this particular narrative, I need to keep in mind that it fits in this larger section where this is happening, okay? And it, it helps us to not take things out of context. So um, go ahead and go to your outline page. And we are going to kind of go over some of these sections. Um, so as I was reading, these are just the chunks that made sense to me. So chapters 1 through 3. What we're going to see in these chapters is we're going to see the birth of Samuel and his calling to become a prophet. So chapters 1 through 3 are really about Samuel 
how he becomes a prophet, and eventually he'll, he's going to be the last judge too. Okay? Chapters 4 through 7, we're going to have some wars that happen. This is going to be the arc narrative. These chapters detail a war that God brought to judge Israel and that led to their asking for a king to lead them, okay? So it's kind of a transitional period here, chapters 4 through 7. Chapters 8 through 12 is kind of where Israel is going to demand a king like the other nation, and we're going to see this rise of Saul. It's going to seem really promising, like, wow, Saul, he looks like he's going to be a great king, okay? So 8 through 12, Israel demands a king, and we see the promising rise of Saul. <coughs> Chapters 13 through 15. These chapters are going to show the beginning of Saul's downfall. His promising rise does not last for long, guys. Sorry for the spoiler. So we are going to see the downfall of Saul, and quite a downfall it is. Um, then we're going to see that contrasted with David in chapters 16 through 17. We're going to see the beginning of the rise of David, which is meant to be contrasted with the failures of Saul. When we do these chapters, um, we, we are lumping some of these together. So we are going to be looking at 13 and 15, 13 through 15 the same week we look, to look through 16 through 17. So those are going to go together. Chapters 18 through 20, Saul starts to feel threatened because David is pretty great. So things get volatile, and Saul keeps trying to kill him. And eventually David has to flee. So that's what's going to happen in that section. <clears throat> Chapters 20 through 24, David finally flees. It's his first time to flee. Saul chases after him to kill him, and David proves his loyalty and his restored. So there's a whole long narrative. It's going to be a long chunk that time when we study all of these because we have that grouped together with 18 through 20. It's going to be a lot of chapters, but it all really goes together because David has to flee. Saul tries to kill him. David proves his loyalty, and he is restored. Not for long, though, because jump to 30 or 25 through 31, Saul just can't drop his hatred of David, and so he has to flee again. And this time he starts to live among the Philistines, who are their enemies. I mean, this is very unlikely for him to be living among them. And then the book is going to end with the death of Saul. <clears throat> so that's kind of where we're going. We've got three main characters we're going to be following. We're going to be following Samuel, we're going to be following Saul, and we're going to be following David, okay? And we're going to see the end of the period of Judges the beginning of the monarchy, the rise and fall of Saul, and then the rise of David. Second Samuel kind of covers this, the fall of David. We're not going to quite get there. You may be wondering, why do we do this? Like, aren't we going to just learn all this as we go? And yes, we are. But it really is so easy to get bogged down in these individual narratives within the book and forget that overall context that they fit into. And when you do a like a super simple outline of a book, you're more likely to kind of think as you read, like, huh, you know, this is in the middle of a larger section on Saul's downfall, so how should I interpret it in light of that? Or this comes right before we hear of David's rise. How should that change how I read it? So it's easier to keep the purpose of the shorter narratives in mind when we see how it all fits together as a whole. So this should hopefully be a good reference for you to look back to. If you're, under, if you're having a hard time understanding how to how you should read something, look back at this outline, and it'll give you that framework and context again, and it might give you insight to understand how to read it again. Okay, so last thing that we're going to do before we break into our groups is I want to briefly touch on the idea of themes, okay? So go ahead and flip to that third page. <clears throat> now, when I ask the question, what is the book about, like about any book, there's two ways that you can answer that question, and both would be right, okay? The first way that you can answer that is a way that we have worked really hard in all of the previous studies to do, and that's kind of to give a summary or a paraphrase of the book. So the way that I would answer that for Samuel is something along the lines of, 
Well, this book is about the beginning of the monarchy for Israel. Um, it tells the story of the rise and fall of King Saul, the first king, and the rise of David and the fall of David, if you count 2 Samuel. So that is a summary of the book, and that is a correct way to say what the book is about, right? Now, the second way you can answer the question is to address the theme. You might say something like, this book is about pride versus humility, or this book is about the failure of humans to be the king that God has been for Israel and that Jesus would eventually be. So do you see the difference? That way of answering is basically drawing on meaning that you have gleaned from the text to answer the question, okay? Both of these are really important skills to develop. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk through a couple of the major themes in the book of 1 Samuel that I want you to just have your eyes open for and be looking for as you read. But there are so many more themes than just these, okay? This is just to kind of help you understand what do I mean when I say themes so that you can be identifying themes as you go as well. And at the end of the book, we're going to be sharing what themes we found as we studied, okay? But I want you to kind of really understand what we mean by theme. So the first theme that we kind of um, put on there is the theme of pride versus humility for those in authority. We're going to be following some major authority figures in the book of 1 Samuel, okay? Samuel was the person leading Israel. He was the last judge. Saul is the first king. David is the second king. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to see some of them lead at times in very prideful ways, and some of them lead at times in very humble ways, okay? So that is a theme that I want you to be looking for as we read the book and be asking, like, what am, what am I supposed to be drawing from this story? Like, what am I supposed to be learning about pride or versus humility here? Another theme is the theme of repentance. Like, we're going to see early on, we're going to see Samuel lead the entire nation of Israel to repentance early in the book. He's going to guide them to repent. And then... With Saul, we're going to see a lot of pretty bad false repentance, okay? And then with David, we're going to see some good examples of genuine repentance. So we're going to, as we read, be learning a lot about what it does and does not look like to repent. So I want you to have your eyes open for that theme as we read this book. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, we have, importantly, we have the theme of messianism and kingship. So much of this book is about the fact that there is a greater king to come, like the Messiah Jesus is going to become and be the king that these men could not be, okay? We just need to have the eyes to see this as we read. So constantly throughout the book, we're going to see the failure of humans to lead, protect, and deliver Israel the way that God did. And we're going to see foreshadowing of a greater king to come when God is going to eventually send Jesus, okay? So it's another theme to be looking for as we read. So over the coming weeks, we're going to try and practice the skills not only of summarizing, and I know you all hate that every time we do a study. Everybody hates the summarizing questions. They hate when we do that as a small group. <coughs> but we're not going to stop because it really is so vital. It's the most basic part of our comprehension level skills, okay? But we're also going to practice identifying how there are themes woven throughout the book because that's going to help us so much as we try to look for the underlying meaning in the passages we read. So like I said, they're both ways of answering the question, what is the text about? But summarizing is going to help with our interpretation or our comprehension skills. And then identifying the themes is going to help us with our interpretation skills, okay? Um, which is, again, one of our major goals of this study. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. And then we're going to break into our groups and start processing what we've learned tonight, processing kind of how we feel about this study before we jump into really digging in on your own and the homework this week. And hopefully now we all have a really good foundation so that when we do study on their own this week, um, we kind of really have a good foundation and a framework for what is going on. I hope that that really helps you study um, well, okay?
So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to let Madison give us instructions to get into our group. Dearly Father, thank you so much for your word, um, and I just am so excited to jump into this book with these women, and I, I pray again just that you would be active and moving. I pray that as we break into our small groups, that, um, that you would be present and that you would be leading and guiding our discussion. I pray that we would get so much out of the book of 1 Samuel um, and that we would just leave, again, just changed and transformed by you. So thank you for bringing us all here in the midst of busy schedules, and um, I'm sure that some of us here probably didn't want to come at the last minute, and um, thank you just for bringing everybody. So um, we're so thankful for you and for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Madison, take it away. <laughs>